0: Matt, what have you been up to for the last two weeks?
1: I have been busy
0: Yeah, doing what?
1: I've been cleaning the house <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've actually not been as busy as you've been
0: Well, that's true, but we both had a cool thing happen Where we were both on local news at the same time <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, to follow up on something we talked about in our last episode, uh, six ABC Action News had come out and shot some footage and talked to us for a good two hours, and as planned, it aired. Yeah,
0: that um, we weren't bumped by some terrible news <laughs> event, and uh, we actually made it to air. I guess that was last Tuesday.
1: Yeah. It was, it was kind of neat seeing all of the feedback roll around from folks who had seen us, whether they were in a bar at the time or catching the 10 o'clock rebroadcast. Yeah. Um, and we
0: got lots of new people who'd never heard of us before who watch local news. and, uh, and So
1: thank you, Sarah, Heather, and crew for yeah. coming out and, and sharing our story.
0: Absolutely. That was really awesome. And you can actually, if you uh, did not, follow us on social media and didn't see us post the link to the story, you can go follow us on social media right now on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And uh, we there is a link to the story on YouTube. It's a little two-minute feature and it was really fun. And we got some word that there may be more happening with that story and ABC. It may be going more than local.
1: Yeah, uh, though they did a, a fine job of condensing our two hours of conversation down to two very action-packed minutes, there's sort of a an alternate take, a director's cut, maybe. A, another version going out on a program called Localish, which is a Disney-ABC national program. Yeah, um, in we'll, all the big
0: markets. Yeah. L.A. and Chicago and, and all of that. Anyway... We will let you know when that goes to air. Yeah. And, uh...
1: So you can get like a nice view inside our house and and another angle at uh, all of the different artifacts that we talked about a few episodes ago.
0: Yeah, I found out about this news story on the first day of the choral conference, the American Choral Directors Association conference in Kansas City, which is where I was for most of last week. And uh, so I was completely distracted from choral music and instead just talked about my podcast for the entire week so if you met me in kansas city and you're listening to this now because uh because i gave you a postcard and the quick spiel of what this podcast is welcome new listeners we're so happy to have you (laughs) (laughs) uh what else um Oh, I also listened binge listened to all of the podcast, The Dropout, which was really good for anyone who uh, is interested in other podcasts. That was really great, and uh, I think
2: that I should probably drop my voice about two octaves and maybe, yeah, I have this I have this plan that maybe if I talked like this. People would give me a lot of venture capital money. Maybe <laughs> I would be able to change the world. I'm,
1: I'm really feeling the synergy here already.
2: Are you feeling the the technological synergy <laughs> that is uh, really- It's so
1: absurd. I, I, <laughs> I've i been following that Theranos thing for a while, and it's I, I couldn't be happier to see it collapse in on itself. I think it's a shame what... Uh, People have been fooled into believing. Um,
2: I just want a piece of that action. I just like to wear a black turtleneck and uh, and yeah,
1: frankly, anybody who fetishizes Steve Jobs that much <laughs> is a broken individual. <laughs> I'm sorry, that guy is a jerk. I'm, I'm not park even sorry. In a,
2: in a disabled parking spot, and uh, I'm gonna eat some fruit.
1: If I say any more, it'll get rude and crude and. That's, that's no fun. We don't need to be like that.
0: <laughs> We're like that enough. Okay, yeah. so take a seat. You're in the bog house.
1: Where were we last time? Where did we leave off?
0: We left off with Abraham Carpenter, the Cooper, the creator of possibly America's first advertising jingle, who died in 1768, maybe. But at least, definitely, he died before 1770.
1: Yeah, Abraham Carpenter, uh, as you may remember, is the man responsible for building the house that we're recording
0: in right now. Yeah, or at least the first version of the house. (laughs) Um, He died and the house was seized by the Philadelphia sheriff because there were debts to be repaid, liens as the lingo goes and the property was sold at a sheriff's auction on march the 6th 1770 to the highest bidder who was one daniel williams and this is the point at which i began cyberstalking a dude who's been dead for 200 years in the most intense way possible Just a weird aside, we know someone called Daniel Williams, and so in my head, whenever I think of what he looks like, he looks like my friend Daniel Williams. Hi, Dan, if you're listening to this. One of these days, I'm going to hire you to play Daniel Williams in our theater. It'll
1: be the opening uh, when when we serve fish house punch and and bring the ghost of daniel williams
0: yeah our daniel williams is the artistic director of bravo theater company in westchester pennsylvania and we went to school together at westchester university so i'm sure he'd be up for that anyway as it turns out i am really good at stalking people on the internet like scary good at it luckily i only use my powers for good Generally, and uh, I turned the full force of my stalkery powers onto Daniel Williams because he owned our property during the relevant time when the privies that we have in our foundation were in use.
1: Sure. We found out a lot about what we had unearthed, being, you know, pottery made here in Philadelphia, stuff made in Staffordshire, England, but we still didn't really know who threw that in the garbage, and this seemed like a a potential lead on that.
0: Yeah. History and archaeology, for some people, they seem to be about stuff, but actually the more interesting story is the people who owned that stuff and the lives that they led and what the stuff can tell us about the people who owned it. And also, actually, just from a purely capitalist perspective, artifacts (laughs) are worth more money if they have a story behind them, if they have a provenance.
1: Yeah, and, uh, I mean, skipping ahead a little bit so we can move backwards again, part of why we're even talking about this right now is because we had done that research and found some really interesting parallels in the timeline of this gentleman compared to what we went through uh, with this same building in this same neighborhood. I feel like it's not even just people uh, and individuals, but um, seeing how he works in the community, uh, how he was involved with so many things is why we're going to talk about him for a little bit here. And also because... We have a lot of information thanks to the Quakers.
0: Yeah, we have tons of information. So I'm going to post a link to this on our social media, but I have a document, a word document that is 55 pages long that has a bunch of source material like primary source material that I've typed up and uh, given references for. So if you want to check my work, you're welcome to take a look at this document or if you're interested in reading the primary sources. Um, you got do chided
1: that. right? Somebody like came at you on your blog once.
0: Right! Cause... it was like there aren't enough footnotes, there aren't enough I'm like fuck you dude, this is a blog entry. I'm not writing a fucking this academic paper. This is a scholarly
1: paper. document, but, but Jesus uh, Christ. challenge accepted. Okay, yeah,
0: fine. Fuck you. I can do this. I did go yeah. to grad school. Okay, great. Uh, anyway, so let's start with Daniel Williams and the life story that we've been able to glean. Matt, you want to begin?
1: Yeah. Daniel was born the son of Edward and Eleanor Williams back in 1717 on December 2nd in the Julian calendar.
2: Oh yeah, this
0: is a weird thing that actually a lot of people don't know about. In 1752, we changed calendars, like the entire Western world changed calendars from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. And I'm not going to get into the details of why, suffice to say that... December 2nd in the Julian calendar corresponds to December the 13th in the Gregorian calendar, which is our modern calendar. So you have to add 11 days to any of the dates that we're talking about in the early part of Daniel Williams's life until about 1752.
1: So we just went through daylight savings time and it's like that but times 11 days. <laughs> and it never goes back. I
0: don't never goes back and it's really confusing and it's the reason why for instance people get like Bach's birthday wrong all the time because it's the wrong date
1: (laughs) right so he was born in December at least in 1717 which
0: interestingly makes him a year older than Benjamin Mifflin that Hmm. we talked about in the last episode so even though Benjamin Mifflin owned the property before Daniel Daniel is a year older than him or a few months older
1: Benjamin Mifflin Cleary uh, got a little more privilege uh, out of the lottery here than Williams, just a little, just a
0: little. Anyway, Williams,
1: I think Williams did pretty well for himself. Oh, but sure. we'll get into that. He was born out in Radnor, uh, in in what was called the Welsh Tract outside of Philadelphia. Uh, Radnor is along what's known as the Main Line now. Uh, it's uh, the western suburbs of Philadelphia, which at the time would have been like freaking nowhere
0: it, yeah well it was like farms but there were a lot of wealthy people out there and continue to be a lot of wealthy people <laughs>
1: there's a history of wealth
0: in that direction if you ever watch the movie the philadelphia story it's set on the main line it's yeah. not actually set in philadelphia proper so the welsh tract hmm is so named because remember when we were talking about William Penn and how he basically went around collecting a bunch of people that nobody wanted in Europe? <laughs> right. <laughs> like he went to Germany and chatted up a bunch of Amish people and uh then he And not Amish and people and not Amish people, but Germans because Germans
1: Germans were like really looked down upon at the time. Yeah in, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Uh, it's been interesting seeing that. Uh boy that That's something for an episode three or four episodes from now. Yeah, um, anyway,
0: anyway. (laughs) And uh, the Welsh, too, I guess probably faced a deal of discrimination in... It's
1: hard to understand them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You couldn't spell any of their names. It was really frustrating. And the bunch of them were Quakers. There were a lot Mm -hmm, of Welsh mm -hmm. Quakers. So uh, Daniel organized for a lot of Welsh... Quakers to immigrate to his new Quaker colony, the new Quaker paradise that he was setting up. And he designated this whole area to the west of Philadelphia as the part where the Welsh Quakers mostly live. And to this day, along that stretch of the main line, there are a ton of Welsh names, like a whole lot of names that begin with two L's and... uh, (laughs) Things that are difficult to pronounce, like Bala Kinwood.
1: The Welsh tract, the mainline, you see the effect of this uh, even across the country. There are places that are named after mainline towns like Bryn Mawr uh, and Gladwyn, which were formerly Marion Square and Humphreysville. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because Welsh Quakers tended to be pretty wealthy. And uh, I think that these places was sort of posh, so Welsh names to certain people began to signify money.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, Daniel grew up in the countryside with uh, at least three siblings. Uh, he's got uh, brothers William and James, and a sister Sarah. Of because course, uh, Sarah, Rebecca, and and Hannah. Were he has taken. a brother
0: William, so that means that his brother's name is William, William Williams.
1: Williams, Billy D. Williams. <laughs> His middle name's not D, Um, (laughs) uh, But they grew up in a rural area called uh, Blockley at the time, which is closer to Philadelphia than Radnor. It's in an area now called Overbrook, which is kind of just outside of, or maybe right within the city limits. Yeah, it's
0: basically West Philly, right? I know,
1: it's it's the last stop on uh, the main line as you get into the city on the train. But out there is presumably where he learned his first trades. He was very much a miller and a baker, uh, which makes a lot of sense that these are important trades in the turn of the 18th century. Right, his um, parents were still establishing society out here.
0: Sure, I, I'm sure his parents owned a farm with wheat. Say, that's what you grind into flour, right? God, I know nothing. I'm such a city girl. <laughs> you grind wheat into flour, right? And they probably grew that? Corn, maybe? I,
1: I, I don't know. Um, we maybe should look that up, but it's too late now. Uh, there's certainly lots of corn in Pennsylvania now.
0: That's true. Anyway, they grew something that they turned into flour, and the farm probably had a stream on it so that you could mill the flour effectively. Mm-hmm. Anyway, at some point... Daniel started going to the Marion Meeting House. So there was because this was a big Quaker area. There were several different meeting houses. His birth was recorded at the Radnor Meeting House, and then the Marion Meeting House is a little closer to the city. Wait,
1: no, no, further out. Further out. It's further west than over.
0: Matt forward. knows the main line. I or- used
1: to ride the train. i i spent a total of four years taking the train in between Downingtown and Philadelphia, which beat driving for about a year
0: yeah i didn't do it as much as matt and every time i hear or read the word radnor all i can think of is the train conductor yelling radnor that's like that's how you have to say it radnor (laughs) (laughs) marion marion station all right so marion station marion station marion meeting house we've actually been out there because we wanted to check it out because it's still there, the meeting house that Daniel Williams went to. And uh, okay, I have to do this little aside, which has absolutely (laughs) nothing to do with Daniel Williams, but which I, it, this probably says a lot about me (laughs) and the things that I was influenced by as a kid. One of my favorite television shows when I was a little kid in the late 80s was Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. Okay, I would sneak out of bed at night because I was an insomniac as a child, a problem I no longer have, thank God. And I would turn on the TV really low uh, when my parents were asleep and watch Robert Stack smirk his way through various ghost stories (laughs) and stories of alien abductions and crime and uh, bank robberies and vicious murders and rapes, because that's the kind of thing that an eight-year-old really likes to see on the television. Anyway, I remember around halloween of i think 1988 or 89 it was like the first halloween special for unsolved mysteries i watched it and it scared the absolute shit out of me i loved it so much though um and it made a huge impression on me it made such an impression on me at the time that i actually you know risked getting into trouble and woke up my mom after I'd watched the show and told her all the ghost stories that I had seen on the television, which she chided me about the next day because she said it gave her nightmares, me telling her these ghost stories. And one of the ghost stories that I remember really well was about a haunted inn where Revolutionary War soldiers would appear, ghostly figures, in the night, including a severed head that appeared on a table. Okay, so cut to 30 years later, Unsolved Mysteries comes on Amazon Prime, and I immediately watched the entire thing. And when I got to this episode, I nearly died. A, because the special effects... Not,
1: not so convincing in, in your 30s.
0: Oh, my God. I laughed so hard at how frightened I was at the time of this show when the special effects were unbelievably cheesy. I also did not realize at the time how on the edge of cracking up laughing Robert Stack appears to be at every, every time he talks. And secondly, because that haunted inn... I didn't realize it at the time, but that haunted inn, which I remembered so well, was the General Wayne Inn in Marion, Pennsylvania, and it is actually right next door to the Marion Meeting House, which I was researching at the time because of Daniel Williams. So it is literally right next door. It was operational as an inn for exactly 300 years from 1704 till 2004. And unfortunately, in 2004, it went out of business, but it was bought by an Orthodox Jewish congregation, Chabad, I think it's called, and uh, they turned it into a synagogue. <laughs> so, which just, which just, I don't know, it just seems really strange to me because all I can think of when I think of this building is the severed head appearing in the kitchen and <laughs> the the ghost of the dead Hessian soldier that was buried in the basement that came to haunt everybody and there were hundreds of ghost sightings in this building and now it's a synagogue <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, and, and you said it probably doesn't have anything to do with Daniel Williams, but it was built in 1704. Right. Like so He absolutely he went, there. went there. He
0: totally went to this um, inn. The, George I,
1: Washington and Ben Franklin were guests at this inn. I like mean, this was This was an important <laughs> spot.
0: 100%. These people were at this inn and... When I was eight years old in Brisbane fucking Australia, I knew about this inn. It made a massive impression on me. (laughs) And now look where I am. It's so weird. Life is strange. Life is so weird. Okay. Um, So where were we? Uh
1: (laughs) Well, he was going to the Marion monthly meeting Mm -hmm. um, because he was looking to move into Philadelphia.
0: Right. And in Quaker meeting... I guess, tradition, rules. If you are moving house and you want to leave one congregation and join up with the congregation closest to the house where you're moving you ask your current congregation for a reference letter to take to the new congregation and say look i am a quaker in good standing and i am not a crazy con artist and i'll be a fine addition to your meetings so the record of him asking the marion monthly meeting for this reference is recorded In 1744, when Daniel Williams was 26 years old, he is going to move to the Big Smoke.
1: We don't use that phrase over here.
0: (laughs) Really? You don't say the Big Smoke in America? I
1: googled it, and like most of the references are Australian.
0: Oh. Well, there you go. Now you've learned a new term, Americans. The Big Smoke (laughs) is a big city because you burn things in cities.
1: I mean, I I could be wrong, but I'd never heard of that. I I really uh, googled it just now. (laughs) Um, but We've
0: been married for 15 years, and we're still learning things about each other.
1: It's it's, it's great. That's nice. Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so the Marion gathering did a little investigation on their member, Daniel Williams, and they certified that,
1: after inquiry made, we do not find but that he is of an orderly life and conversation, so he's not a weirdo. <laughs> Right in unity with us he's he's you know he's down with a clown uh, and clear marriage uh, clear of marriage engagement as far as we know right so he's, we
0: think that he hasn't had any like marriages sort of pretty secret, sure he's single. secret marriages yeah. uh, but you know don't hold us to that <laughs> He could have gotten married when we weren't looking. Yeah. <laughs> it's possible. Anyway, as it turns out, Daniel moves to Center City, Philadelphia, or what would become Center City, Philadelphia. And very quickly he meets a lady friend. I guess it's it's probably much harder to find a wife when you live on a farm yeah. where everyone's your cousin. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> so he moved to Philly and uh, and he met one Jane Oldman. The daughter of Thomas Oldman. I can't find her birth date, but I assume that she was a, a little She's younger totally than her. Yeah, I assume so. This was kind of the practice at the time. And also, as you'll see, um she had many years of fertility ahead of her. So after 14 months, he and Jane are getting on so well that they apply to the Arch Street monthly meeting for permission to marry.
1: I should note, we went to the Arch Street Meeting House. Uh-huh. Uh, I think the first time we were there was for a theremin show.
0: Yes, that's <laughs> correct. A theremin concert with the Divine Hand Ensemble. Yeah. And there was a cockroach that crawled onto the stage, and one of the violinists stomped it with her foot while she was playing. It was <laughs> the most punk rock thing I've ever seen in my life.
1: Uh, if only the Quakers could imagine what the future was like. <laughs> but yeah, these buildings are all still around, which mm-hmm. is uh, fantastic.
0: hmm So an interesting thing about Quaker weddings is uh, it's very business-like. It's very this sort of interesting, not particularly romantic in the modern sense of a wedding.
1: Sure, it's kind of transactional.
0: Yeah, which, you know, I think reflected how people thought of marriages in the 1700s. So what happens is the two of them come to the Quaker meetings, and there are separate meetings for men and for women at the Quaker house, sort of this... Separate but equal idea, right? Naturally,
1: <laughs> well, of naturally. course,
0: of course. You know, then they were pretty radical to even allow women to have their own meeting, but they weren't so radical that women and men could mix in their meetings. Anyway, the two of them appeared at the men's meeting and asked for permission to marry, and two other men from the congregation are assigned to talk to Daniel Williams and make sure that his intents are good and that he's a good person and sort of investigate him and vet him. And then they do the same thing at the women's meeting and two women are assigned to do the same thing to Jane Oldman. And then they all go away. And at the next month's meeting, they report back. They check in to see that the couple is still interested in marrying each other and the two groups of two people you know give their report to say that everything is cool and they haven't seen anything weird and you know it seems like this marriage is being entered into honestly and happily it's a lot of bureaucracy it is yeah. i mean it's kind of good i guess you know well,
1: it's just another variation on on marriage there's a lot of different ways a lot of different societies sure. handle that whole process
0: i think i prefer this to you know the idea of asking parents to do this for you, the you're asking your equals in the congregation to check it out, like your friends, really. Yeah. Literally, Quakers call each other friends, the Society of Friends. Then the month after that, they actually have their marriage. This is in January 1746, January 27th in the julian calendar uh, if it were in the gregorian calendar january 27th is actually mozart's birthday as i recall but mozart wasn't born till 1756 and also we're in the julian calendar so this is exactly 10 years and 11 days before wolfgang amadeus mozart was born sorry probably i have to <laughs> mozart head here i have to mention these dumb facts okay It was a Quaker ceremony attended by 62 friends. I actually don't know how that compares to other Quaker weddings, but it seems like a lot of guests and they're all listed Mm -hmm. because the next day there was the regular January monthly meeting and uh, the details of the wedding were presented and it was recorded in the meeting minutes that the wedding was, quote, accomplished orderly.
1: (laughs) No problems.
0: Orderly seems to be, you know, a primary concern of Quakers. Yeah. And I think in a religion that arose out of a time of political chaos, order is probably...
1: You can understand the want for order. yeah, Yeah, for sure. Over the next decade or so, Daniel gets pretty busy. He's got pretty much three things going on for him as he gets into this whole Philadelphia routine. He establishes a milling and baking business at his residence uh, at Second and Walnut Street with a bakehouse o- on the dock. Uh, the dock referring to what is now Dock Street, mm-hmm. which at the time was a physical dock. There was uh, water that, that curved up. That's why that is one of the streets that is not on the grid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Second and Walnut being in what is now called Old City.
0: It's about a mile, a little less than a mile south, directly south of where we are.
1: Yeah. He also uh, began to appear in the records of his fellow Quakers, not only in Philadelphia, but back in his hometown out in the Welsh tract as a witness, as a trustee, or as an executor in legal documents such as wills or real estate transactions.
0: Yeah, I think about this job as kind of analogous to what Australians or Britons would refer to as a solicitor. The legal profession in Australia, at least, is divided up into two different kinds of lawyers. So there's solicitors who deal with a lot of administrative paperwork and conveyancing and marriage documents and real estate and death documents, wills and things like that. And then there's barristers who actually do the arguing in court.
1: So it's almost it's like a notary and then some
0: yeah I get yeah kind of but you still have to go to law school yeah it's just solicitors do most of the everyday legal work
1: yeah well, we're in America now <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's true in America we don't really have the same kind of thing but it sounds like Daniel had a side gig as a solicitor for hire preparing documents for his friends and signing on things
1: yeah he, he really got involved in a lot of of business and, and just societal functions uh, in Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, one of the other things that he did was being a creditor for people, so uh, so this is kind of interesting. I found this book in which he's mentioned, it, it was published in only 2014, and the book is governed by a spirit of opposition, the origins of American political practice in colonial Philadelphia by Jessica Chopin-Roney, published by Johns Hopkins. And I'll just read this short little quote from it because this is actually really relevant to what we just went through (laughs) in 2015 exactly Uh, it's crazy so even mortgages and bonds were insufficient in some cases to secure a loan. This is talking about people in Philadelphia in the 18th century trying to get a loan from a banking or a loaning institution. You know, there was a lot of development going on at the time and people needed money to start their businesses and build their houses. And
1: Right, but it's this developing colony.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of rich people who banks are very happy to loan to and there are a lot of not rich people who need a leg up to get a start. Hey, this sounds so familiar to me. (laughs) huh? So it was difficult to get a loan. Sometimes the directors of these loaning institutions required yet one more layer of security, the joint signature of another creditable person. For instance, when a borrower lived outside of Philadelphia, it was often customary to require that someone in Philadelphia co-sign the loan. The hospital managers, the Pennsylvania Hospital, started by Benjamin Franklin and now a part of the University of Pennsylvania Hospital, they actually lent money to people because the hospital had a lot of money and uh, was able to be a lending organization as well. The hospital managers only agreed to loan money to one John Burgess of Bucks County, quote, if he procures Daniel Williams or some other person of credit in this city to engage for the punctual payment of the interest annually. And this is interesting to me because it's not quite analogous, but pretty close to the situation where we were trying so hard to get a construction loan and all of the banks that we went to were like, no, you're just a couple. You know, you don't have enough credit to do this. You're not rich enough to get a loan. And it wasn't until we paid... A mortgage broker who knew people at the banks Uh and knew how to get a loan to apply for loans with us and for us, that we were able to get our construction loan. I assume that when Daniel Williams co-signed on a loan, he would have taken a fee and earned some money.
1: Uh, I think we could definitely say that given how well he ended up doing over the years.
0: Sure. So that was like the second thing that he was doing was getting involved in all of this kind of money, legal solicitor stuff. Yeah. And what what was the third thing that he was interested in, Matt?
1: I did say there were three things, didn't I? I? Um, The third thing uh, he was getting up to was lots and lots and lots and lots of Jane.
0: (laughs) His wife? Yes. Jane, his wife. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was he doing with Jane, Matthew?
1: Giving her babies. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> but it was 18th century Philadelphia. And actually, this is a, a recurring theme for, for a while. Um, the vast majority of the children they had died in like their youth if not shortly after birth.
0: Yeah. This is devastating to read about, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later, but how many children did she... We
1: we have records of as many as 15 children, but only five of them survived past childhood.
0: Even the ones who grew to adulthood, uh, Daniel Williams survived a couple of those children, like one of, like, you know what (laughs) I mean? Yeah, yeah. So just think about that for a second, We'll talk about this, as I said, more later, but 10 of the babies died. 10. That's nuts.
1: Yeah. You think about just one of those happening to anybody today, how devastating that is.
0: Right. That would end people. And yet, as we're going to show, Daniel Williams did not stop his life at all No. while all this was going on he just kept on trucking and surviving and prospering. It's kind of astonishing to a modern person to think that someone can be doing these two things simultaneously. Watching their children die and being a business person.
1: At this point, let's take it up to 1754. Mm -hmm. Uh, Daniel Williams is 37. I think at this point, Mifflin is starting to do stuff with the property yeah Daniel's still got his baking and milling business, but it's growing to the point where he's now purchasing advertisements in newspapers. Mm-hmm. We've got one of we we actually have a lot of them. but one from May sixteenth of that year is probably the the earliest known one. It's the earliest one Melissa could find.
0: Anyway. yeah. the main thing that Daniel Williams seemed to sell throughout his life, actually, is something called bolting cloths. Bolting cloths are sort of sieve-like screens that you use to sift flour during the milling process and they come in different grades so you can produce different kinds of flour for different purposes or different costs, I assume. And I think Daniel was probably Philadelphia's go-to guy for bolting cloths because he advertised for the rest of his life. And his ad copy, although it went through a couple of slight variations, principally because he kept touting how incredibly experienced he was after decades of selling these bolting cloths, the pitch really stayed the same throughout his life. And here is the example of the first one here. It says... Lately imported and to be sold by Daniel Williams, baker, living near the corner of Second and Walnut Streets, who has been long experienced in grinding and bolting, super fine, fine, middling and coarse bolting cloths, cheap for ready money or short credit. NB, millers or others who are not well acquainted with bolting may depend on being supplied with cloths and instructions, if required, suitable for every part of the bolting business. So this was kind of Daniel's main retail deal at this point in his life. And as I mentioned, for the next 35 years, every ad that he places that pertains to his retail business continues to mention, it might even just be an asterisk at the bottom, but it will sort of say, also, we sell bolting cloths, and we'll tell you how to use them if you need.
1: <laughs> Been doing that for a while. Uh, know how it works. Uh, I, I actually have to, to sidestep a little bit. Um, this was nagging me, uh, and, and I have to bring it up. Uh, we talked about them going to the Art Street Uh, Quaker meeting house Uh And how we had been there Uh, And while we were talking I remembered actually drawings Of what was called the old Quaker meeting house The old friends meeting house So I was maybe googling while you were talking Uh Uh, And actually where these folks Met up to get married is no longer there. It was actually at Front and Arch Streets, um, right about where Arch Enemy Arts is.
0: Oh, no kidding. Yeah. The art, that's the art gallery that we mentioned that is curated by the daughter of our foreman in our construction process. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. They got
0: married there. We have to have an event there at some point, you know, when we're ready. Do Uh, some
1: goth Quaker art.
0: Goth? Oh, my God. Have a goth wedding (laughs) themed like the Daniel Williams and Jane Oldman wedding. Oh, so cool. I wish we were getting married again. Anyway, <laughs> do you want to keep going from that?
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. I, uh, I was just uh, totally just had to get that out while it was still there. Um, during this period, Daniel was doing very well. Obviously, we talked about him advertising for the rest of his life. Uh, that was a bit of a spoiler. In 1759, he's 41 years old now. He moves his family and his business to a house on Chestnut Street, really close to Front Street. Um, he stops referring to himself as a baker, And calls himself a merchant or a gentleman and focuses really more on uh, the more lucrative and less labor intensive fields of commerce, credit, local politics, and really plying his trades in social capital. Mm -hmm. By 1760, he's elected to the Philadelphia County Commissioner position that he holds for a little while. He's already a long-standing member of the Schoolkill Fishing Company of Pennsylvania.
0: Okay, what's that?
1: <laughs> it's actually the oldest gentlemen's club, not like that.
0: No, not that kind of gentlemen's club. Like no. a social club for gentlemen. Yes. Like a in the world. In the world, the longest continu the oldest continually operating society a uh, social society.
1: Yeah, there was there's was one in London that uh, predates it, but they stopped and started, so that doesn't count.
0: Right. So the Schuylkill Fishing Company is the one that wins. Okay, I'm a little bit obsessed <laughs> with the Schuylkill <laughs> Fishing Company. And this it's might kinda weird. It's super weird. And it almost certainly I'm obsessed with it because when I was a teenager, I was super obsessed with the Freemasons. Like really kind of creepily obsessed with the Freemasons. And then one day I learned what the secret handshake was from a Mason and the obsession vanished. It was the weirdest thing. It was like magic. So I know the handshake, guys. I could um, fool Masons, except that I'm a woman. Except
1: that you're a woman. (laughs) I don't think you fool them that well.
0: That's true. Uh, Anyway, the Schuylkill Fishing Company sounds like a fishing business or something. But it's not. It's fish themed Freemasonry. Honest to God. (laughs) That's what it is. It's like Freemasonry meets like a bass pro shop or something. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, like, basically, they there was this clubhouse that they had up on the Schoolkill River.
0: Yeah, like in, in what's now Fairmount Park, mm-hmm. uh, which was not a park at the time. It was like deep woods.
1: Yes. Basically, everybody got there. They hung out there and they fished for uh, rockfish and uh, perch. But I think most importantly, they drank fish house punch
0: right well first of all it just (laughs) i think it probably just started as gentlemen from the city like rich gentlemen from the city who go out to fish and then because secret societies like exclusive societies of men were super in vogue in the 1700s i mean the freemasons were like a massive thing Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of these guys were also freemasons and so They had their clubhouse and they just layered on these weird rituals that went along with
1: it. This might be one of the earliest examples of just nonsensical stories about magical Indians.
0: Oh, God. Yeah.
1: There's this story about the founding of the, the Skullkill Fishing Club being around meeting with some Lenny Lenape. Chiefs. Chiefs.
0: Right. They won't say which ones, but they
1: said like the ones that, that knew William Penn. Yeah. Um, who who met up and said, you know what, you guys, you guys are great. Um, <laughs> we love hanging out with you. You can fish and hunt here literally forever.
0: In perpetuity, we give you license. Just the Schuylkill fishing company. We give you license to fish and hunt in all of this area along the Schuylkill forever. And uh, and that's sort of written into the uh, Schuylkill fishing company history as you know the beginning of the company.
1: <laughs> I, I, I've always wondered why people come up with these weird sort of uh, oh no I've I've got native blood like it's. It,
0: uh, I mean it's that you know that it makes them feel a little less guilty and a little more legitimate, right? It's-
1: I, I don't think it, it... I think you're looking even deeper than most people think, <laughs> at least from the folks that I spoke to, the the, the folks that I grew up with in, in central PA. Mm-hmm. There's a whole interesting conversation there. But... Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the Schuylkill fish <laughs> Fishing Company. Totally, country. totally because of some some Indian chiefs who were like, hey, thanks, uh, you guys are awesome. Yeah. You can fish here forever. Right, right. We promise.
0: Right, and uh, <laughs> well, well, let's backtrack to what you mentioned earlier. You like um, jumped the gun because you were so excited about Fish House Punch. Okay, <laughs> so the official drink of the Schuylkill Fishing Company was this thing called Fish House Punch, uh, which they drank in their Mickey Mouse clubhouse in the woods. It contained rum, cognac, and peach brandy, and there are still bars that you can buy it at.
1: Yeah, there are a couple places in Philadelphia that serve Fish House Punch. Uh, The
0: last time Rob Hunter and Michelle Erickson were in town, in fact, we went to a bar in Old City. Yeah,
1: Old Bar, Mm -hmm. which uh, is in the old Bookbinders building.
0: And they had Fish House Punch on the menu, and I immediately was like, oh my God, give me the Fish House Punch, please. And it tastes kind of like a peach Long Island iced tea. So you can see how it would be really easy to get totally fucked up on this stuff, right?
1: (laughs) Right. So how fucked up do you get?
0: You can get so fucked up that you don't write in your journal for three days.
1: Even if you're George Washington.
0: Yes. So there is a story about Fish House Punch. First of all, I should mention Fish House Punch was traditionally drunk out of, no fucking joke, a baptismal font, like a big... Baptism bowl that they would have used to baptize babies <laughs> in. They would mix up the fish house punch in a baptismal fund and drink it in their glub, clubhouse. And they would have. Uh,
1: it sounds like it was also a clubhouse. A club. <laughs> glub,
0: glub, glub, glub. <laughs> You're terrible. So they would uh, get so fucking blotto on this stuff. And George Washington, yes, George Washington was an honorary member of the Skokul Fishing Company and could come over any time and have a wild frat party with all of these dudes out in the forest. And he apparently one time got so fucked up on Fish House Punch that he was so hungover he could not write in his journal for three days afterward, which was a big deal because George Washington tried to write in his journal every single day.
1: Right, I, I think that's what it is Is there's, there's an entry in his journal About drinking Fish House Punch And then no entries for three days
0: Right, and then he comes back and is like Oh my fucking god, I got so fucked up <laughs> That's a direct quote, by the way From George Washington's journal So Daniel Williams was A long-standing member And is written in the company history As being part of the Schuylkill Fishing Company And going Into the woods with a bunch of dudes And having, you know homoerotic parties with them, I can only assume. <laughs> Look, I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> Another unusual collection of well-to-do men getting together and doing unusual things together uh, <laughs> <laughs> was uh, the library company uh, of Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin's library company. Uh, Daniel Williams actually bought shares in Ben Franklin's library company. And what I mean by that. Ben Franklin had a subscription library. It's not uh, a free library like you think of uh, typically today. You had to buy shares, subscribers, payments towards the library company, paid for the collection, paid for new books and adding to the collection. You could borrow as much as you liked for free. But Daniel Williams was the 105th person to buy shares in the library company.
0: Which is pretty early on, I assume, in the library company's history. Like 105 members is pretty small membership for a library, right? Yeah, yeah. So one of the fascinating things about the library company of Philadelphia is that it was an offshoot of an organization which I think is still around today. Can you Google that while I'm talking? Um, The Junto Association, oh, the Hunter Club. Um, which I looked at the history of this because I was looking at the history of the library company, and I just think that it is the weirdest thing. So when Benjamin Franklin was 21 years old, he started this organization, this gentleman's club called the Hunter Club, right? The Hunter Club basically consisted of Benjamin Franklin as the hallowed leader and a bunch of dudes at least 10 years older than him and some significantly more old than him that had a ton of money and would essentially give this young, hot 21-year-old dude a ton of money so that they could listen to him speak. So every week he would or every I don't know how often the meetings were, but they would have these meetings and they would shower him with money and he would talk to them about shit like philosophy and, you know, current events and how to be a good person and all of this stuff. And it just makes me think
2: of Elizabeth Holmes and (laughs) really rich people showering her with money. When she's only twenty years old, and like, do you think Benjamin Franklin talked in a really deep voice in wool
0: black turtlenecks?
1: I mean, at the time, wasn't actually a really high voice, very heroic. I don't know. Like, wasn't that the thing? Well,
0: maybe, that, but that would be how Benjamin Franklin like established his. Diff- but maybe I don't know. I don't know. Do you think Ben Franklin was shrill? <laughs> I just find this whole concept just really a little bit mystifying. Like the the idea of a twenty one year old kid starting a club full of like old rich dudes to shower him with money so that they could listen to him speak. This, I mean, how do I do this? <laughs> Maybe that's the question I'm asking. Is why why did this happen and how was it not happening when I was twenty one? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, you asked if the Junto is still going. It yeah. looks like somebody tried to adopt that brand here in Philadelphia. Oh, in the certainly in the late 2000s, they stopped tweeting in 2014.
0: Oh, um, I guess they didn't have Benjamin Franklin's charisma. And what I have to assume is like. Amazing sexual magnetism. I just I just can't divorce it from the idea of sex because I just my, it is my personal opinion that Benjamin Franklin was pansexual and just exuded sex appeal to every gender and worked through life just seducing people constantly.
1: Right. I don't think well, that was one thing we didn't actually touch on when we got into Benjamin Mifflin. Um, Yeah, because
0: it's such a sidebar. We're in, like, sidebar city right now. (laughs) (laughs) We're just just fine. These are people who knew the people that we're talking about right now.
1: Right, but uh, one of Benjamin Franklin's unusual friends from uh, Europe was... Uh,
0: Baron, von, Baron Steuben? von Steuben Right, there's a drunk history about this actually I think starring David Cruss as von Steuben Which is fucking hilarious Von Steuben was this gay guy in Europe Who was rumored to have had an affair with like Frederick the Great or something in Prussia He got kicked out of Prussia for being gay And went to Paris While Benjamin Franklin was in Paris And then was being threatened with being kicked out of Paris For being too gay.
1: Too gay for Paris. Yeah,
0: and Benjamin Franklin recognized that von Steuben was, uh, you know, probably... A man
1: of many talents. Yeah,
0: let's say that. And uh, he was sort of... about to go into the Revolutionary War and knew that this was all happening. So Ben Franklin essentially extended an invitation to Baron von Steuben to come to America and help Americans fight the British. Didn't bother offering him any money. (laughs) And just sort of said, you know what, just get on a boat and come over. Can I have some money? No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. But what you can have is, uh, you know, a, a place to live in... A land where we don't judge quite so harshly. And
0: some real cute aides to camp, (laughs) which is totally what happened. And uh, von Steuben came to Philadelphia and actually stayed in a house that was owned, I think, by... By one of the Mifflins. I'm not sure if it was our Benjamin or if it was Thomas, but it was like he stayed on a house near the corner of Front and Market Streets that was owned by one of the Mifflin family. And then he went out to Valley Forge and fucking invented the American military.
1: Oh, yeah. And like from scratch, starting at. Don't shit where you eat.
0: Yeah, like Valley Forge, (laughs) the camp at Valley Forge was in such a state because none of the people who were fighting the British knew how to be in a military. We didn't have that kind of expertise. They just didn't know how to do anything. And von Steuben set out some rules which are so super obvious to I think anyone thinking logically but apparently we're not obvious to people who grew up with a lot of lead in their food in the 1700s so he said when you're digging latrines when you're digging toilets don't put them next to the kitchen tent and also don't put them uphill Of the kitchen tents, right? And Because apparently soldiers, no joke here, soldiers were just squatting and shitting right outside the tents where they were sleeping. Like, what the fuck?
1: His his drills and his orders and and, and just his teachings were used by the United States Army right through the Mexican-American War of 1846. Like, this... What was he? The sodomite general?
0: Yeah, like the, the sodomite soldier. Sodomite I think someone soldier. Someone called him that. He wore furs and he had a little lapdog and. Uh, like two
1: huge pistols. He had
0: huge pistols. People were constantly impressed by the size of his pistols, which he wore in holsters on his hip. And he had several aides de camp, which. I guess is meant to be, like, uh, just a younger soldier who does all your bidding and, you know, odd jobs and chores, but totally were, like, his, you know, equivalent of a spouse. Like, just in every sense, 100%.
1: Yeah, and... um I know it's a a little bit of a sidebar and we'll wrap it up soon, but it's an interesting thing because, yeah, he he got to know Ben Franklin.
0: Yeah. And then the next thing you know, he's hopping on a boat with no promise of payment and coming to America. And I just assume that Benjamin Franklin fucking seduced him. Like, I just, you know, charismatic guy. He's a guy who at 21 had like fucking dozens of old men showering him with money. And, you know, it, this is, I think that this just came naturally to Ben Franklin.
1: And who had such influence in the sphere of Philadelphia that as open as Philadelphia was and as uh, tolerant as Quakers were of a lot of things, pretty sure they still weren't into the whole homosexual thing.
0: Probably not.
1: And at the same time, von Steuben didn't have any trouble doing what he did.
0: Yeah, uh, people, He still got a
1: pension from the military. Right. People
0: were very grateful yes. for, to him for telling them not to shit where they eat (laughs) and for you know whipping the army into shape a lot of soldiers died at valley forge but it would have been so much worse if von steuben had not told us how to be an army but
1: yeah he uh he made his aides to camp uh his heirs Mm -hmm. Uh, i think he uh adopted them even um,
0: it's it's because <laughs> that's the closest thing you could do, yeah, really. Li- to yeah. yeah, to make it all work. But Ben Franklin was like walking around naked, and st- when he was elderly, and still like cheating on his wife with women and stuff. There's a drunk history about that too. It's kind of amazing. But you know, I'm just saying this dude must have fucking exuded sex from every pore. It just <laughs> this is my assumption.
1: And you know what else is sexy? What? Librarians. Oh,
0: yeah, that's right. We were talking about the library (laughs) company. We were
1: talking about the library company. (laughs) Let's let's remove ourselves
0: from Tangent City for a second. Yes, wind (laughs) it back. (laughs) So the library company, you said Daniel Williams uh, bought shares. He was the 105th shareholder. Mm -hmm. But he was a little bit more than just a shareholder, right? Because, um, I mean, I think that he joined the library company not just because he loved to read books. He joined the library company because he wanted to meet important people (laughs) (laughs) and become an important person himself. Because 14 years later, after he first buys these shares in 1766, for a term of three years, he served as Benjamin Franklin's library company treasurer, which is you know, an important position. You have the president and you have the secretary and you have the treasurer. You know, these are like... And this speaks decisions.
1: to the the continued financial success yeah. of, of Daniel Williams. Yeah. that He's able to take these powerful roles uh, handling the money of important institutions in Philadelphia.
0: And the coolest thing about this is that because Daniel Williams was the treasurer of the library company... There are available meeting minutes of the library company where we have written proof that Daniel Williams and Benjamin Franklin were essentially buddies hanging out in rooms together and working on the library company organization together. Benjamin Franklin was, what, 11 years older than Daniel Williams, so older but not a whole lot older. But they were in the room because it'll say at the beginning of the meeting, minutes, who is present in the room? And right there for three years they were hanging out.
1: Yeah, it's funny. This is sort of a theme throughout uh, everything that we've been reading here. Even though Philadelphia was the second largest city in the British Empire at the time, uh, it was still, and much in the same way it is today in, in a lot of ways, a town where everybody knew each other.
0: Yeah, and I think... A big town in the 1700s is not as big as you might imagine. Like, one of the funniest things about the advertisements that I keep finding for Daniel Williams is sometimes at the bottom it would say, do you need credit? Find Daniel Williams in Philadelphia. Because there was only one Daniel (laughs) Williams in the whole of Philadelphia, and it was pretty easy to find him. You just sort of asked around, and people would point you at Daniel Williams. If you're doing this cyber stalking. Today, you know, I know someone named Daniel Williams. There are probably dozens and dozens of Daniel Williams that I would find living right now.
1: Yeah. At the time, though, there were only 40,000 people living in Philadelphia.
0: Right. Um, Smaller than Harrisburg.
1: I say only, uh, but that was almost double what was in New York City, the second largest city at the time.
0: Dang. Philly on top.
1: And Boston only had (laughs) (laughs) 15,000.
0: Practically a village. (laughs) I'm not competitive, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) The next story about Daniel Williams is possibly my favorite story about Daniel Williams. Uh, It is amazing and mysterious, and the mystery is not 100% solved. So this is still a little itch that I need to scratch uh,
1: it would be amazing if this podcast went to the right people, oh my and and they were able to track this down.
0: This is like actually the whole reason I'm doing this podcast <laughs> is that I really hope some museum this professional,
1: weird little thing,
0: <laughs> some museum professional listens to this and is like, oh shit, I know exactly what she's talking about. Okay, so here it is. This is the story of the Pegs Run Sword in 1764.
1: So three years after our building's built.
0: Yes, three years after Abraham Carpenter has built our building, Daniel Williams hasn't bought the building at the sheriff's sale yet, but he's the city commissioner, as we mentioned. He was elected to this Philadelphia city commissioner position. In 1764, Daniel Williams is overseeing the construction of the Second Street Bridge, which is being built over a creek known as Peg's Run also known as the Coconut Creek. That's like the Lenny lenape word for it. And that creek actually kind of still exists in Philadelphia, but you can't see it. It is underground. And it's been diverted into a sewer that runs under a street, which is one block north of our house called Willow Street. And it's the reason why Willow Street is a fucked up shape.
1: Yeah, if you look at Philadelphia on a map, it's a, uh, I think we talked about it being this grid-based city. One mm-hmm. of one of the earliest planned grid cities. But there are a few streets that don't follow a grid. Oh, I mentioned Dock Street earlier. Willow Street is similar in right. that it, it just sort of meanders on, on its own path.
0: It's a really annoying street to drive on. It's <laughs> very narrow and it's really messed up with potholes and things and you kind of wonder, gosh, why don't they fix this street and straighten it out? They can't. Because the street is built over a creek that is running through a sewer under the street. So it really hampers what they can do to sort of make the street navigable.
1: And and when we say creek, it was a creek when it was culverted over and, and, and eventually turned into a sewer. But at one point, uh, there were sloops that would winter in, in this Cahocanoke.
0: Right, like Big ships. You could navigate down the creek a little way.
1: But yeah, if for for any locals, uh, this this bridge that we're talking about here, back in 1764, is literally where Willow Street meets Second Street, mm-hmm. um, where and you've you've taken ways and you're like, why did it take me down this windy road? And now I have to make this horrible right turn into traffic. Everybody's uh, they just put speed cushions in, I guess. But yeah. those will last all of a year, I'm sure. <laughs> that right there. Is where we are uh, 250-some years ago.
0: Okay, yeah. In order to build this bridge, they had to dig down into the soil on the sides of the creek to make a foundation. They had to dig down pretty far because you're next to a creek, and so you've got to get to kind of solid ground so that you can build the bridge over the creek. And while they were digging to create the foundation, does this sound familiar? While they were digging a foundation for this bridge... 14 feet underground on the banks of the waterway, they uncovered a sword. Okay, uh, so we found reference to this story in a book called The 1830 Annals of Philadelphia. It says that Daniel Williams, Philadelphia commissioner, gave this sword that was found in the ground to the, quote, city library so when I saw this one thing to note is that 19th century history books are generally completely shithouse like they're not we're so privileged actually to live in an era of modern scholarship where there are you know, footnotes and reference points and, you know, you can check the veracity of claims or you should be able to check the veracity of claims. In the 19th century, nobody gave a shit. The book says something like, oh, we talked to this 74 year old guy and he said that they found a sword and they just accepted that as fact. And, you know, what happened to the sword? He gave it to the city library. Like, okay. I
1: will say the Annals of Philadelphia, which is freely available online because it's so old, does contain a lot of, Really interesting first-person accounts of Philadelphia, and really uh, accounts for a lot of what we know about historical, colonial, pre-revolutionary America.
0: That's true. Um, I still hate 19th century historians. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's all word
1: (laughs) of mouth and and witness testimony.
0: And, well, here's the thing. This is the reason why it pisses me off, is that this historian could have checked this story. (laughs)
2: The Uh, the library. It's it's
0: actually possible to check this story because I know this because I fucking checked this story. Okay, (laughs) so on a hunch, I sent an email to the library company, which is still in existence, Benjamin Franklin's library company, and pointed out this episode from the 1830 annals and said do you have a record of this does the city library mean you in 1830 and do you know anything about this sword like oh what can own. you tell me
1: and if you ever want to see something cool happen ask a librarian to find something
0: oh my god like okay for like librarians are the best i fucking love librarians so much the world needs more librarians and we need to pay them more money because they are the salt of the earth i fucking love them This librarian went to the actual original meeting minutes of the library company from 1764 and found the record... Of Daniel Williams giving the sword to the library company. Oh, my God. I'm going to read this out. I'm so fucking excited about this. It's amazing. So it says, this was, by the way, this is two years before Daniel Williams became the treasurer of the library company, but he was a member and he was the city commissioner, so he's pretty important. It says, at a meeting of the directors, February 13th, 1764, present is Thomas Cadwallader, Jacob Shoemaker, Joseph Stretch, Benjamin Franklin, Richard Peters, Charles Thompson and Francis Hopkinson, the secretary. The secretary reported that Messrs. Michael Hillegas and Daniel Williams, two of the county commissioners, had presented the company with the blade of a sword or cutlass, which they found 14 feet from the surface of the ground in digging the foundation of the new bridge in 2nd Street between the city and the barracks. This blade is marked TS in capital letters, and serves to show how great a body of earth must have gathered in the short time since the Europeans first came into America, which is not more than 150 years, as the natives knew nothing of the use of iron till they were taught it by the white people. <laughs> Resolved that the secretary, in the name of the board, thanks Mrs. Heligus and Williams for this curiosity and take care that the same be lodged in the library. <gasps> What? What? We? Yeah, which I'm like, why didn't dude writing the annals do this? Why am I doing this in like 2016? I mean, he was doing a lot of work. I know, but it's, still, it's... that's his job. Anyway, <laughs> um, so then, of course, my next question is, where is it? Where's the sword? Tell me, librarian.
1: And it turns out that uh, this is a, a problem, actually, that we're, we're going through with the Philadelphia History Museum right now. They had this object collection that had just swollen over the years. And as this collection grew, they needed to figure out what to do with it. So they actually purged much of their object collection over the next 200 years, either because of the object's poor condition or uh, the presence of museums made a curio collection at the library really unnecessary. It's something that's... A difficult problem to really deal with when you know that you're the place that people bring all your old stuff.
0: Right, and then they don't... It's it's expensive to keep this stuff from degrading and to keep it in good conditions and to figure out how to house it, whether to show it. It's expensive.
1: And a sword is not a book. Right. <laughs> it is a library. It is a
0: library. So, uh, unfortunately they did not keep records of each object's destination they didn't write down who they gave each object to and uh, they have no record of what happened to this sword which is so heartbreaking (laughs) i need to find the sword right but there's also the possibility that the sword was so degraded i mean this is a piece of iron that was 14 feet underground next to a river right it could be that it was so rusted that at some point the library went eh, and threw it out. It's entirely possible. We don't know. But there's also a chance that the sword was given to a museum or a private collector and that it's still out there somewhere. So I need everyone out there to keep an eye out for an old sword with the letters TS on the blade Because Daniel Williams touched this sword and gave it to Benjamin Franklin. This is just, this is so important. (laughs) The amazing thing about this story, the thing that I instantly fixated on when I heard it, is that 255 years ago, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, Daniel Williams was digging in the ground.
1: In our neighborhood. In
0: our neighborhood, less than a block away from where we are right now. And found something from the past And was so taken with it And what it meant And uh, he immediately went to experts And to museums And showed it to them And they were excited about it And I can't believe That we're doing exactly the same thing Digging in the ground And finding stuff that may have belonged To Daniel Williams Or, you know, it's it's so cool Yeah, it's, uh... (laughs) We're we're all the same. We're just the same. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) The best. So, well, let's continue with this life, I guess.
1: So around that time, Daniel is on a property buying spree around Philadelphia. He's clearly doing very well with business. Uh, So again, he buys a house this time on Chestnut Street between 4th and 5th. So he's moving his his residence a little further into the city, maybe a a little way from the hustle and bustle of the dock.
0: I think it was probably, because it's right next to what's now Independence Hall and was known as the State House at the time. So I'm assuming this is like like a ritzier part of the city and maybe closer to the political stuff.
1: Definitely closer to the political stuff. So I, I
0: think it was probably like, a class move as well to get to 4th or 5th Street and mm-hmm. Chestnut, you know?
1: Yeah. Uh, he, he didn't actually sell his old house at this point. Um, the house that was on uh, Chestnut uh, a few blocks up at Front Street uh, remained as his shop um, until 1764 uh, when, uh, because he found a sword, he purchased a building around the corner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: he, he actually bought a building around the corner at Front Street near Market. Uh, and moved his business there. Just a couple years later, he acquired another 15 acres of farmland in uh, the Northern Liberties. This would have been just north of where the Temple Performing Arts Buildings are now.
0: Which is funny, because we were just there this afternoon. We saw the vocal ensemble of Otches 8 perform uh, with Live Connections, which is a group here in Philadelphia that organizes really cool community events at the Temple Performing Arts Building. So... You know. treading
1: on Daniel Williams' old farm ground. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, unrecognizable. Uh,
0: yeah, it doesn't look like a farm again, anymore. Again, it was uh,
1: if if you can imagine in the 1760s uh, where Temple University is was trees and pastures. Yeah. And, like just not the city at all. Not the city.
0: Yeah. Meanwhile, in his front street shop, he expanded his bolting cloth business. Uh, The first things he sort of branched out into were uh, millstones, which is obviously related to milling and bolting cloths, but also Madeira wine casks, which is kind of interesting. And then he partnered up with another merchant named Samuel Eldridge in 1768 And this is when he really expands all of the stuff that he's selling in this store. It becomes essentially a drapery, uh, which is interesting because we already talked about how Hannah Callohill's dad was a draper and she helped run the drapery. And here again, we have Quakers running a drapery. It's not actually that much of a stretch if you think about bolting cloths as being kind of a rough industrial cloth. He took his expertise with that textile and just moved it up into a much more classy textile joint. He is selling things like flannels and damasks and silks and cotton and linen checks. He's got
1: stuff from Russia, Germany, Ireland, all kinds of imported Fancy fabrics.
0: Yeah. And then also haberdashery, like sewing bits and pieces and needles. And then also just some random dry goods like nutmeg and pepper and paper and cutlery and hardware. He lists all of these in his advertisements, by the way. It's kind of It's like a
1: full catalog.
0: Yeah. (laughs) He just like has this massive list of all of the fabric and all of the goods that he sells in his store. I'll post that online in case you're curious and want the complete list of Daniel Williams uh, goods for sale. He was selling all of this stuff Not only at his store, but in the ad, it also mentions that you can come to his house in Chestnut Street, a little below the state house, and uh, knock on his door and do business with him there.
1: If you've got money, he's happy to take it wherever, whenever. Right.
0: (laughs) Well, one of the things I find really interesting about this is that uh, one of the rules of being a Quaker is you have to dress in very plain clothing. But Daniel is selling quite fancy fabrics like, you know, damask and brocades and things like that. And he wouldn't have been allowed to wear any fabrics from his store because the Quaker meeting would have taken him to task for it and said, hey, uh, the rules of this place is you have to dress in like plain black stuff and sort of no fancy clothes. But I guess, you know, he's not actually wearing it. He's just selling it to people.
1: Yeah, I think this really establishes a long standing tradition of, of being a, a kind of religious fundamentalist who doesn't mind what they sell. Like the... Uh, Amish cocaine ring in Lancaster.
0: This was something so amazing. So for those of you who don't know about central Pennsylvania, I assume your mind will be just as blown as mine was when I came to Lancaster and discovered that the police would occasionally bust massive drug rings that involved the Amish. Like you'd see mugshots in the paper of clearly Amish Men, Like, you know, Jebediah Stoltzfus has been arrested for dealing cocaine.
1: <laughs> and there were also like barns you could go to, at least in like the 90s, um, where you could buy electronics on the cheap.
0: Right. Which like, they wouldn't use. They,
1: they weren't using them. They were just trading dealing. in them. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, I guess that's always been a thing.
0: Yeah. So we're coming up to the part of Daniel Williams's story right before he buys our property. There's a little bit of a preamble to it because I found a document from 1769 which shows that Daniel Williams was a member of a grand inquest in the mayor's court, which I think is kind of equivalent to a modern day grand jury. So he's sworn in, and along with a bunch of other people, his name is listed. It seems like all the people who are listed on this grand jury were kind of important, property owning, rich dudes in Philadelphia. Like I don't think I don't think they had broke people on these court dockets. Just a hunch. <laughs> they all had names that I've seen on in other places. Things
1: weren't that revolutionary. <laughs> Yeah, the, the interesting connection here is that he was sworn in by one high sheriff, Joseph Redman, uh, who he might have also known as a fellow member of the library company. And just a general fellow important gentleman about town, and for me, this is changed how I thought about the naming of Lake Redmond in in York. I always thought it was something much more simple and stupid than that. (laughs) Um, uh, So the significance here is because in December of 1769, Sheriff Redmond was the official who seized a property at 21 Callow Hill Street to pay the debts of the previous owner. Now, 21 Callow Hill would, in, in years coming up, be renumbered to 103 Callow Hill. The previous owner of this property, Abraham Carpenter, had debts that he had to pay off and couldn't because he was dead. Mm -hmm. The sheriff advertised the public sale of 103 Callow Hill Street in an advertisement that Melissa had found in her previous investigation. Uh, And in 1770, uh, in March of 1770, sold it to the highest bidder, one Daniel Williams. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: We don't really know for sure that he bought this property because he was buds with Joe Redman, but uh, I I think...
0: they knew each other. They knew
1: each other. They
0: were like, there's was, there was so many points of intersection here. Like, if he didn't know him from the library company, he surely would have known him because he was sworn in on this jury by him. and
1: Daniel Williams was selling casks now, and Abraham Carpenter was a cooper. Uh, everybody like, knew
0: everybody, right? Yeah. It's just like this kind of Philadelphia was a really small world back then. And if you were rich and a white quake dude... You knew all the other rich white quake dudes like it's just, <laughs> yeah. just just take it for granted that they're all friends.
1: So at this point, Daniel Williams uh, begins to enter our life
0: mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so, so to speak
1: <laughs> So to speak. Um, um, things we, are set in motion anyway.
0: Yeah. So one caveat here is that we don't know a hundred percent how Daniel Williams used this property. He didn't right. live here because no. he had this beautiful house on Chestnut Street between 4th and 5th that he lived in with his wife and surviving children.
1: Right, he had a shop on Front and Chestnut.
0: Right, and this wouldn't have been a great place for a retail shop anyway. Like, the shops that were this way tended to be manufactories, like you mentioned in the previous episode. And uh, we don't... I could not find, for love or money, any advertisements that Daniel Williams placed saying, you know, this building for rent or, you know, what this building was for, there are a few different options, right? Maybe since he was importing textiles at the time from Russia and Scotland and all of these places, maybe because we were right next to the docks here, he used it to store textiles that he put in his shop. Maybe he rented it out to tradesmen or dock workers or something like that or just, uh, you know, a shop owner or a manufacturer of some kind. We just don't really have a good idea of what happened here. Yeah,
1: it's fairly easy in the grand scheme of things to find property ownership records, but finding rental records uh, has proven difficult, yeah. at least uh, through the paths that we've taken so far, which have almost entirely uh, involved using the internet. <laughs> um, uh, we we really uh, have a, a big gap here in terms of who was on the land yeah. Uh, when this stuff got dumped into our privy.
0: But, um, I mean, if Daniel Williams bought this place, he definitely was here at some point. You didn't buy...
1: Oh, for sure. Pieces
0: of land, sight unseen. So Rob Hunter, the archaeologist that we have been talking to, that we mentioned in, what was it, episode four or something like that, of four and five, um, he theorizes that the Bonin and Morris waster piece, the unglazed, quilted T bowl waster piece that we mentioned in that episode, might have made its way into our privy because Daniel Williams' shop at 40 Front Street was right around the corner from the Bonin & Morris retail outlet. So it's entirely possible that you know, for some reason uh, he would have spoken to someone who worked at Bonin and Morris and some kind of transaction happened and maybe that's how the Bonnet and Morris waster got in our privy somehow. Like, there is some sort of geographical connections that can be made between Daniel Williams and Bonnet and Morris. It makes a little more sense than a worker from the Bonnet and Morris factory two miles south of us somehow making their way to our house to use the toilet.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's a long way to go poo.
0: It's a really long way to go do a poo.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I think this is probably a good point to...
0: Yeah, this was part one of Daniel Williams' life. As you can tell, this is like so much information. And I feel like, I hope you're getting kind of a pretty good idea of what Daniel Williams' life was up until this point. But there's more to come. The next episode, we are going to talk about... Daniel Williams' involvement and his family's involvement in the Revolutionary War, which is about to get cracking. And then the next episode is going to be about the latter years of Daniel Williams, which includes some pretty serious questions about slavery and what Quakers were doing to end what they saw as a violent practice that was contrary to their philosophy.
1: I'm Matt Dunphy.
0: And I'm Melissa Dunphy.
1: And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review if you like what you hear.